P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Tesla reported earnings yesterday after the bell, and what they delivered up was very pleasing to traders, at least initially in after hours. Uh, but they've kind of backed away from some of those uh, bets now. I want to bring in somebody who knows much more about this than I do, Liam Denning. He is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist, uh, and you wrote a column that highlighted one number in particular. $970 million. That's the amount of cash that Tesla burned through in the last three months of 2016. So, what was your biggest takeaway? Was this your biggest takeaway from uh, from the Tesla earnings? I mean, yeah, that's really the only number that that counts with Tesla at any any time. I mean, the earnings themselves uh, they were distorted this quarter by the uh, acquisition of Solar City, um, and in any case, whether Tesla beats earnings, misses earnings. There is zero correlation between that and what happens to the stock price the next day. I've I've gone back and checked it. There's none. Why? Uh, because the the key issue here is um, is uh, Tesla's cash flow and its ability to realize this ever expanding vision uh, that Elon Musk lays out. If you look at any valuation model for Tesla, most of the value resides in what people expect it to be doing. You know, five or ten years from now. You know, whether it's producing millions of vehicles or uh, you know installing solar roofs or building its fifth gigafactory, uh, the the constant need for cash necessitates a strong message of growth and transformation. And that's kind of what I meant when I said, you know, investors take Elon Musk seriously. They don't take him literally. That's a good good distinction to make, Liam. I I was looking at the FA page, because I love it, of uh, Tesla. And um, I note the free cash flow has a wonderful minus sign next to it, as you just mentioned, yeah. uh, at least for the year. $1.4 billion, uh, as a matter of fact. Uh, how much, is there any estimate how much they're going to need? Um, well, it's, uh, you know, it's looking like they're going to need uh, a lot. Yeah, well, no, a lot <laughs> um, I got. But, I mean, so, are, we, are we talking, I mean, because obviously, you know, uh, well, the reason, it, the reason it's interesting mm-hmm. also is because Elon Musk, of course, uh, owns, what, about 20 percent of the company mm-hmm. so uh, what is uh, what is the most what he wants is probably most likely to happen well the way to think about it is this so um you know cash seven flow, billion in revenue cash flow for, yeah but cash flow from operations in the last quarter was about a minus you know 400 somewhere between 400 and 500 million right um their guidance for capex just for the first half of this year is somewhere between two and two and a half billion so that means net net they're probably going to burn through i would say somewhere between two and a half and three and a half billion in the first half of the year and that kind of makes sense because they're about to launch the model three which is their their kind of mass market ev that's where they try and get from producing you know 
80,000 cars a year up to more like five or 600,000. Well, let me just offer this note. This comes from our colleague, Corey Johnson, who, you know, coming up on Bloomberg Markets PM. Uh, he said a year ago, Chief Executive Elon Musk stated on their Q4 earnings call that, quote, something I'm personally quite excited about is that we expect to be positive cash flow starting next month and then continuing into Q2 and beyond. Well, analysts don't agree. I'm looking at the expectation for fiscal year 2017. Uh, that was a year almost. ago. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, then yeah, fiscal didn't, year right, it 2018, didn't come in, right, it didn't uh, come true. I'm looking at a, a sort of an expectation among analysts of a negative basically $870 billion. Right. Um, but I would go back to the original message, which is that none of it matters, which is, right. you know, uh, he Tesla, can say whatever Tesla he wants. Has missed sales forecasts. It's original sales guidance for the last three years running. And it's got a market cap, which is almost the same as as Ford's. That will give them the wherewithal to go out and sell more equity to raise more money. And as long as they keep pushing out uh, a message of, of growth and transformation, and as long as enough investors believe in it, then they can keep raising money to keep pushing towards it. Okay, so what could happen to disrupt this virtuous chain of events? Okay, so it, it, it's hard to say specifically, but I think what would have to happen is some sort of real uh, disruption to something like the Model 3. Now, it's looking like uh, the guidance for the Model 3's production, it, it, I mean, that looks pretty shaky to me, the numbers that they were putting out last night. We haven't even seen a, a fully functioning pre-production model yet. It doesn't look like we're going to see one before production is supposed to start in July. So if, some, if there was some real setback to that, then I think that might shake people's confidence. I think the other thing is, as time rolls on, we're seeing more competitors like GM, Ford, BMW launch their own electric vehicles. I mean, GM has pretty much beaten Tesla to the punch with the Bolt, which is going to be the main competitor to the Model 3. And I think over time, although right now Tesla is seen as the, the force for change in the autos market, at some point there is going to be the reality of having lots of other competitors who are also able to offset their risk with other cars producing their own electric vehicles. Thank you very much. Liam Denning, Bloomberg Gadfly, columnist shares of Tesla down about 5.5%. I want to turn to Krishna Mamani, Chief Investment Officer at Oppenheimer Funds, uh, to talk a little bit about what he's seeing in the bond market. Specifically, I want to start, Krishna, with comments that we heard today from U.S. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, uh, basically expressing great interest, frankly, in issuing longer dated U.S. Treasuries. This would be the 50-year or possibly even 100-year uh, Treasuries. What's, what's your feeling on this? Do you think this is realistic? I, I think from a demand perspective, so uh, in any policy change, you have to kind of focus on whether there'll be some buyer for the security. Well, or you're not. a buyer, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a buyer. And, and I think there are lots of people who are buyers of really long bonds, so especially of would, higher quality. So you would buy a 50-year U.S. Treasury? Ab absolutely. Because if you, if you have really long-term liabilities that you're looking to extinguish and extinguish with really high-quality assets, there really isn't a better instrument available. So do you have a sense of what premium you would need for a 50-year treasury 
over a 30-year treasury or a 10-year treasury in order to make it worthwhile? So my guess would be that that premium is probably smaller than most of us anticipate. And the reason for that is because the uh, the convexity characteristics, which is a, uh, a technical term to say the uh, the uh, the price appreciation and depreciation qualities of really long bonds, is very good. And from a uh, from a liability extinguishment standpoint, the demand is quite solid. So I I think that premium would be much less than what we think uh, uh, it would be, and much less than what the difference is between ten years and thirty years today. As much as I would like to say that I'm going to be around in 50 years, i got to say that there are chances that I might not. So why would you buy something that is going to be subject to the vagaries of inflation, uh, global instability, uh, in order to satisfy a current, and I don't mean you personally, but I mean to satisfy a current hole in the portfolio because, number one, you can't think of anything better to buy. Second, you need to keep your job, and no one's going to fire you for buying U.S. Treasuries. You're going to say, here, I bought them. It matches our liability, but, you know, I'm not going to be around when this thing blows up. So th- that's that's funny that you say that, but th- you, 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 you have to recognize uh, that while you and I may not be around in 50 years— there are pension plans. No, no, no. Be- I got. I, I understand all that. But I mean, if you're to tell me that you were to buy a 30-year, uh, let's say it's 30 years right now, mm-hmm. a th- at 3%, you mean to tell me that in 30 years, you're not going to take a hit in terms of what it is maybe your new customer base wants in terms of a return? Because if you're an insurance company, you're matching future liabilities, future new customers. Sure. So, but I, today I have some liabilities that I need to fund and demonstrate to the accountants that my liability is fully funded. So you're limited in what you can... Exactly. Got it. Okay. All right. Well, moving moving on to something else that Mnuchin said, he said that he thinks it's completely feasible that the U.S. should see uh, 3% or even higher growth. That's up from a 2% rate or less, frankly, now. Uh, first of all, do you agree with this assessment? And second of all, if this is true, what bond is going to get hit hardest? So I, I, I think that's... That's really more hope than reality, in my view. All right, then. Uh, so you don't think that's true? I, I, in the current environment, the likelihood that we get to uh, higher than 3% growth rate anytime soon, I'm not holding my breath. You know, it, it's, not, it's not to say that it couldn't happen, but for it to happen, a whole lot of policy initiatives have to come into play. And policy initiatives like significantly higher level of fiscal deficit, which I don't think the Republican administration, or at least the Republican Congress, is really very much in the mood uh, mood to do. Without that, the likelihood that we get 3%, in my mind, is virtually zero. And yet you do still think that uh, benchmark borrowing costs in the U.S. will rise enough to legitimize or justify uh, favoring leveraged loans or other floating rate debt, correct? Well, so... The the floating rate debt market is really not just about uh, your view on where rates are going. That certainly helps, but I, I think what you have to factor in is the fact that floating rate yields are comparable to high-yield yields, and um, therefore, um, the, the and they are senior. So the downside in loans is significantly less than what it is in uh, high-yield bonds. And as a result, uh, I, I think in the current market environment, loans is the best asset class in all of, all of credit. 
Having said that, uh, you know, the, the interest rate component of loans is a side benefit rather than the primary driver of the value in loans. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Krishna Memani is the Chief Investment Officer at Oppenheimer Funds. Uh, he is uh, based here in New York and joining us in our 1130 studios. Thank you very much for being here. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. At propercloth.com, ordering custom shirts has never been easier. Create your custom shirt size by answering 10 easy questions. Select from over 500 fabrics to suit your personal taste. Shirts start from $85 and are delivered in just two weeks. With Proper Cloth's perfect fit guarantee, remakes are completely free and expert staff are standing by to help. For premium quality, perfect fitting shirts, visit propercloth.com. Custom shirts made smarter. When you think of appliances, Lisa Abramowitz, do you think of J.C. Penney? Yes, I do. You do? I do. Well, I'm glad you do because this was a category that they, uh, well, they exited at one point and now um, they are back in the world of appliances. So you must have a very good memory. Here to tell us more, Craig Johnson, President, Customer Growth Partners. They're based in New Canaan, Connecticut. Craig, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming into the studio. Tell us about JCPenney and whether there is any way they can uh, offset that weak store traffic and uh, also the negative soft apparel trends that uh, a lot of retailers are facing. Well, Pim and Lisa, great to be with you all today. Um, yeah, JCPenney has been doing a lot better under the uh, still fairly new uh, CEO, Robert Ellison. Uh, he came out of, out of Home Depot, as you might recall. And so he knows a lot about major appliances. Now, um, they exited the major appliances like 30-plus years ago, but they've always been in small appliances, kitchen appliances, and so forth. Um, and so they're looking – that is one of the things they're looking at to increase the productivity of the store floor. The floor is still uh, – JCPenney stores are still way underproductive where they used to be some years back. And they're working on the Internet. That helps. They're doing much better on that than they used to be uh, – used to do. And um, major appliances is not going to be a panacea because for major appliances, I would argue a little bit there with Lisa, it's not, it's not top of mind for most customers. Most major appliance sales are what are known as duress sales when the old unit conks out. When the old unit conks out, you're probably going to go to Lowe's, which is number one in market share, maybe Sears, Home Depot, or Best Buy. JCPenney just doesn't pop up then. <laughs> Greg. Just zooming out a little bit, this is peak earnings week for the retailers, and it comes at a time when a lot of people are writing off retailers as uh, soon-to-be victims of the Amazon boom and the online uh, move to shopping. And yet, we're seeing beats, Kohl's this morning, beat expectations. We saw Macy's beat expectations earlier this week. Does this point to signs of recovery, in your opinion? Well, the fact that they beat pretty dour expectations <laughs> doesn't always bode well. In other words, it's, it's, it's maybe a moral victory at most at best to have only negative 2.2% comps, as Cole's reported. Hey, they so, take what they can get, right? Right, exactly. But I, I distinguish between the department store sector and the apparel sector 
which have been the most troubled. And, and department stores are mostly apparel and accessory stores, mostly for women. They will have a home section and so forth, but it's mostly apparel. And that whole sector is is declining. It's a much slower share of market than it used to be. Department stores a generation ago um, uh, used to have 10% of the retail market. Now it's down to 1.6%. So you do the math. That is not... That is not a good thing. But other parts of retail, off-price apparel, such as TJX, which had fairly decent numbers, Ross and Burlington, which we reported over the next you know week, 10 days, they'll do very, very well. Um, and, and there's been a major rotation to home, um, whether it's home improvement or the home furnishings players. W, Wayfair just reported this morning, did you know very strong numbers, not making any money, but they reported a strong top line. Tell us about... Um I, I got to go to L Brands. I know that the, the results are already out, so I was just watching. You want to this. talk about Victoria's Secret, don't well, you? Well, I just don't. I mean, here's a stock. It's down 16. Bath and Body Works. <laughs> I see. Good. Thank you. Uh, down 16%. The yeah. safer part. Uh, they don't know. They, they've got their own stores, obviously a brand. But, I mean, is this a store? Is this a business that's going to be around in five years in the same format? Well, somehow I think the market for intimate wear or, or inner wear, as they're calling it these days, I suspect that's going to be around for a while. The difference is, is that Victoria's Secret, uh, 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 as, as apart from Bath and Body Works, which is, you know, different, a little bit of a different animal, but for the for Vicky, uh, we believe that it's overexpanded. It, it kind of breathed, was breathing its own exhaust fumes too much. And any good retail, if you have, even if you have a great concept, you don't want to make it so it's totally ubiquitous, so there's one on every corner because you'll, you'll over-serve the market. And right now, the market for, for, for intimates or, or innerwear is, uh, it's, you know, it's modestly growing, but it's not rampant. Well, and also, didn't Victoria's Secret come under some fire for not having big enough sizes for some clients? And there was some discussion about should they have, uh, should they cater to a larger Population does that matter to you at all, or is that sort of just a irrelevant kind of sideshow? Well, the the, um, the size of the average woman has over the last generation has increased, and uh, the full-figured woman does have a market, and right now that's a little bit underserved, we believe, and so Victoria's Secret, you know, it's it the the image of Victoria's Secret is maybe. You know, a little thinner, younger, etc. But there's a ton of women that may need, you know, a little bit larger sizing, and they are, we believe, they're a little bit underserved. Craig, you said that you just returned from a trip to Chicago. I know you spent a lot of time on the road actually checking out the retail operations. What can you tell about what's going on in the middle of the country in, in Chicago? Well, Pim, as you know, we have a, a team of 18 people. We've been doing this for years across the country. They go about to about 90 major uh, venues. Um, and I, uh, I like to travel myself. I'm native Chicagoans. I remember Marshall Field in its better days. And so you remember um, the chocolate, the mints, I guess. The, the, the Frango mints. Which, I remember which, those Which too. Macy's, I believe, they just sold that. Yes, that they did. That was always a great thing. And so um, retail uh, in the rest of the country is is doing, you know, kind of much better than the pundits think because the headlines are all around the department stores, the well known names, and the department store sector is 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 tanking. It's it's a, it's a near freefall. Now there's a role for department stores, but they have to rethink and reconceptualize really what they are. But what you see in Chicago, can you tell us? I mean, any are there any retail concepts that are new that we need to pay attention to? Well, one to? of them I mean, just just is expanding rapidly is uh, Warby Parker. The, the the eyeglass uh, uh, maker and they have uh, I was in their stores on 
North Rush Street, and it's great locations like Caddy Corner from an Urban Outfitters. You know, they sort of serve a little bit of the same customers and so forth. And so they now have a couple locations, physical locations. This is a, a retailer that started, you know, online. Eyeglasses. Yeah. But they started online. And now they're, uh, now they're rapidly going to uh, building out a, floor, a store fleet. Craig Johnson, thank you so much for joining us, Craig. Uh, it sounds like there are 18 people go around secretly shopping for, for, for their business. I love it. Uh, Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners in New Canaan, at Connecticut. Well, Pim Fox, we heard quite a bit this morning from U.S. Treasury Secretary uh, Steve Mnuchin now that he has been confirmed. He is making the rounds and giving some sense of what his priorities will be uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, I want to bring in Saleha Mosin. She is a Bloomberg News reporter to talk a little bit about what we've learned about uh, Mnuchin's policies. So, Saleha, let's first start with uh, the longer dated U.S. Treasury since this is moving markets and causing, uh, according to some traders, this is what's causing the yield curve to steepen somewhat today. Um, what exactly did he say about the U.S. issuing uh, 50 and 100-year treasuries? So Secretary Mnuchin said that the Treasury will explore issuing longer-term debt, 1,500-year maturities, as you said. Um, he said that with rates seen historically low for some time to come, it is time to seriously explore whether Treasury should be uh, issuing these bonds. Well, what is the likelihood that this will happen? Who does he have in support? You know, there are a few members in Congress who have asked about this in the last year, uh, including some Democrats. But so far in the Senate, there hasn't been a lot of movement on this. It's not clear that he would actually even need Congress's um, full support to do this. But I think for now, it's more just a a, a question of asking market participants and investors what they think and then going from there. You know, Saleha, one thing that I found interesting, uh, both today as well as yesterday, there was an article uh, about Treasury Mnuchin in the Wall Street Journal where he talked about the dollar policy and that uh, the the strong dollar is a good reflection on the U.S. over the long term. This seemed to go uh, in contradiction to what President Trump had said about the dollar being too strong. He also t- said today that there is no urgency to brand China a, uh, a currency manipulator. How much is Treasury Secretary Mnuchin in sync with President Trump? You know, it's hard to know um, when something might come out in a tweet and where the, the signaling there might, when it might shift. Um, but, you know, we have seen some clear signals from Trump himself where he is softening on his views of China um, that started after elections and it's continued as he has become president. Um, and Mnuchin is pretty much echoing that. But this is news that, you know, no announcement will come before April. And that means that they are looking to the traditional mechanisms to investigate whether they should be labeling them now or or how they can start raising any alarms before they would actually formally designate them. It just shows that we're not going to do this haphazardly. We're going to look to what existing established mechanisms we have to do this. Now, Saleha, earlier, President Trump spoke about the United States' economic relationship with Mexico. Indeed, he referenced that Secretary of State Rex Tillerson uh, is in Mexico today, uh, beginning that relationship. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about what you know 
about repealing or changing or reforming NAFTA? You know, right now it looks like a very strong initiative to start like a 90-day review of the law has not started. Um, It looks like they're still in the talking mode. Let's connect with all of our counterparts and see what we hear back as the rest of the world kind of starts to readjust to the U.S.'s new trade stance. You know, one other aspect of uh, Mnuchin's comments earlier today was uh, his expectations for the growth rate in the U.S. He said that it was completely reasonable to expect a 3% or higher growth rate. Did he give any uh, idea of what he thought would push growth to that rate, which we have not seen for years? Yeah. So he stuck to the party line that it is tax cuts and cutting regulations that will unlock this economic growth uh, of at least 3%. Munition did say today on TV in a CNBC interview that he doesn't expect that to really feed into the economy until the end of next year. But that's why they want to get started on this sooner rather than later, just so that that can start uh, showing up in, in the economy. Now, recently, I believe, uh, you know, there was a G20 meeting, and uh, this was at a time when I believe the Secretary of the Treasury uh, had just been uh, installed. And I'm wondering if you could just give us the reaction to some of those uh, from the foreign uh, finance chiefs uh, about uh, Stephen Mnuchin and about uh, U.S. policy. So the next G20 meeting is in Germany uh, in mid-March. And what we had was a... um a leadership gap at Treasury that was longer than before um, between administrations. So the Treasury Secretary counterparts around the world had no one really to pick up and call as they heard Trump and his advisors, including Mnuchin, making comments about bilateral trade issues and currencies that were moving markets. Um, So as soon as Mnuchin was installed, uh, we saw that within half a day, we had his German counterpart uh, talking about saying, you know, be careful how you talk about Uh, cutting regulations because they don't want a race to the bottom of the very regulations that were put in place to uh, sort of keep another financial crisis from happening. And then shortly after that, we heard from Japan's Tarasso uh, about how Mnuchin should be cautious and careful in remarks about the yen. And that kind of comes from Trump's comments that China and Japan are playing in currency markets. Although, you know, aside from just the big Dodd-Frank rollback, which some people are expecting, uh, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin could have a much more direct effect on rolling back some of these regulations, correct? I mean, he could potentially uh, direct the Federal Reserve or the OCC or work with FSOC, uh, the this Financial Stability Committee, uh, to potentially ease certain sort of de facto policies that are that are just basically governed by guidance, Right. That's right. He is, as Treasury Secretary, he's head of FSOC. And so it's up to him. If he decides to put some different issues on the back burner and reprioritize, that is one way to sort of start loosening regulations. Right. Like what types of things are you talking about? I mean, it's hard to say. Right now, he seems very focused on doing anything he can to help small and medium businesses grow investment. They've said for a long time that small community banks aren't able to make loans that really are a part of a large part of the economy and are holding back part of growth, according to their base case, uh, because they are kind of weighed down by regulation. And if they can loosen that up and make it easier for these smaller banks to operate, then, you know, that's what they're going to aim for first. I wonder if you could just give us about 20 seconds on the euro. On the euro, you know, we did hear from Peter Navarro, who is the trade council director at the White House, that Germany does have a large trade imbalance with the U.S. 
and that was kind of, you could say, a soft uh, attack to the, on the euro. Now, we haven't heard a lot on Europe. Um, I know that um, in Germany, Merkel is, is often seen or heard talking about an interview that Trump did many years ago where he says that maybe Mercedes should be tariffed. And uh, you kind of wonder if she is now kind of starting to right. gird herself to maybe be wary of a trade war. With well, Europe. that and, uh, and a coming election. I want to thank you very much, uh, Saleha Mosin, economy treasury reporter for Bloomberg News, giving us details about the new treasury secretary, Stephen Mnuchin. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. P&L is brought to you by Proper Cloth, a leader in men's custom shirts. With proprietary smart size technology and top-rated customer service, ordering a custom shirt has never been easier. Visit propercloth.com to order your first custom shirt today.